We're going to start our time together this morning with a little bit of a mental exercise. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to imagine an image. The first image that comes to your mind, the first picture that pops in your mind, I want you to hang on to that image, and we're going to do a little test and comparison and see how close yours is to mine, okay? So I'm going to say a word, and we're going to go. The first word is God. What word comes to your mind, or what, what picture comes to your mind? You know, you're going to kind of find out what a goober I am as we, as we do this whole exercise, but the picture that pops up in my mind, first of all, there's just like this brilliant, blinding light. You know, I have a couple of them shining in my face right now. It's kind of like that. There's this just huge light with a superimposing figure behind the light, and he's sitting on a throne. It kind of, kind of like the Abraham Lincoln Memorial almost, you know? But then there's some elements of Santa Claus in there too because I know God is kind and loving and he's our father. And so he's not all stoic and regal like the, the Lincoln Monument is. That's just kind of what I picture when I picture God, you know? How about the next one? The next word is Jesus. What, what image do you have come to mind? Well, ours might be pretty similar as we look at that one. You know, you and I probably both saw the same image. We saw Jesus with his long brown hair and dreamy blue eyes and, you know, basically a first century gap model. That's what I picture when I picture Jesus. He's got the blue sash coming over his white robes. It's, uh, and it's totally historically inaccurate. I'm sure there was totally theologically inaccurate things about my God picture also. But I have kind of solid pictures for both of those guys, you know? When, I, when, I have, when someone says the word God, I have a box in my brain that works for that. But this third one, I don't always know what to do with, and that's the Holy Spirit. When I say the Holy Spirit, what image comes to your mind? My mind kind of draws a blank. I don't really know. I never really knew what to do with the Holy Spirit. You know, I kind of picture like this mist, maybe. I kind of picture like the slouchy smart kid in the back of the class that always knew the answers, but nobody really knows what to do with him or how to talk with him or how he fits into the rest of society. And it's because of the way I grew up. It's kind of because of the religious tradition I grew up in. I didn't grow up in what they call a charismatic or a Pentecostal church where we talk about the Holy Spirit all the time. I grew up in a church where we talked about God all the time. We talked about him as the creator of the world, the ultimate authority figure. We talked about him as the one who holds the whole world in his hands. We talked about Jesus all the time. I know exactly what he did. He came on Christmas. He died on Good Friday. He resurrected from the dead on Easter. I prayed to Jesus. I prayed to God all the time. But when it came to the Holy Spirit, man, we talked about him. We all believed in the Trinity. We all knew he was there. We all knew he was part of the Godhead. But other than that, it wasn't like we prayed to him. It wasn't like we asked him for things. It wasn't. And so I just never really knew what to do with the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, you grow up, and even before coming to work for New Hope, I was involved in ministry out in Pennsylvania. And so you start to run into some of these people that come from denominations that do talk about the Holy Spirit all the time, the charismatic and the Pentecostal denominations. And they start telling you sentences like, oh yeah, the Spirit told me this, and the Spirit's leading me to do this, and I received a vision from the Spirit, and all these sorts of things. And I'm going to be honest with you. Th again, this is me just kind of opening up my brain a little bit and showing you what's inside. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not even defending it. I know it's wrong. 
but I'm just showing you what's in there. I kind of had two reactions happen at the same time whenever somebody would say, oh, the Spirit told me, or the Spirit led me, or I had a vision, or I had a dream, or I was miraculously healed, you know, those sorts of things. One of two things would happen, sometimes both at the same time. The first one is I'd get super uncomfortable and a huge bit skeptical. I've received a lot of words from the Spirit. People have told me a lot of things that God told them to tell me that really just kind of sounded like their opinion, masked under this guise of being the Holy Spirit. I've seen those television shows where people are doing crazy stuff in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, and so in the name of the Holy Spirit. And as soon as I hear those words, man, I'm just being honest with you, I have a huge cynic inside of me that just kind of comes up and says, oh yeah, how do I know that that's the Holy Spirit? How do I know that that's the Holy Spirit, not just theatrics? How do I really know that the Holy Spirit told you to tell me that? And I get really defensive, and I get really cynical. And I honestly, I don't like being that way, so that means I'm just feeling uncomfortable, and I want to end the conversation and talk about the weather. I'd really like to get out of the Holy Spirit topic because I don't have a box for the Holy Spirit. I don't understand where he comes from. Then the other half of me, you know, it reads scripture, and I'm reading about in Acts, Acts, you know, the day of Pentecost, they're speaking in tongues. Peter and Paul are healing people. Miracles and visions and dreams and all of this stuff happens in the Bible, right? I'm sitting here and I'm going, well, why haven't I ever healed somebody? I've never laid hands on a paralyzed man and he gets up and walks. I've never had a vision, a dream while I'm sleeping and all of a sudden I know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing from God with the Holy Spirit. Maybe I'm the one that's got it wrong. Maybe I'm the one that doesn't understand what's going on here. Maybe I've been doing Christianity wrong all my life. And so that when, I, when this idea of having a sermon series about the Holy Spirit came around, man, I was excited because I was excited to learn a lot of these things. I wanted to dive into these topics. And then the idea of preaching the message about the power of the Holy Spirit came around. And I raised my hand so fast. I wanted to preach that message because I've, I know the best way for me to learn something is to have to stand on this stage and present it to hundreds of people. (laughs) That makes you learn something really, really quick, you know? So I had to do some research on this message. I had to do some learning on this message. I had to do some thinking. And I'm, I'm excited to share what I've found with you because, man, it's changed how I've thought about the Holy Spirit. After doing the prep for this message, I have a box for the Holy Spirit. I have a little bit more of an understanding and I'm so excited. I don't think I'll ever fully grasp it. I don't think you can ever fully grasp God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit. Our boxes in our brains, our images in our brains are always incomplete, but I'm not scared of it anymore. So I wanna show you what I've found and hopefully you can walk some of the same journey with me. We're gonna be looking at some scriptures and um, we're in a bunch of the same neighborhoods that Darren and Tyler have been in the last two weeks. So we're gonna jump right back into John 14. Tyler shared this message, this passage with you last week, but we're gonna jump in it again. John 14, 16 and 17 says this. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And we've discussed that word a lot the last two weeks, that word paraclete, right? We don't need to go into it again. If you didn't catch what that word helper was, watch the last two weeks of messages. So that he may be with you forever. Here's the sentence I wanna key in on. The helper 
is the spirit of truth. So Jesus calls this, this entity the spirit of truth, and helper is like a describer word for him. The helper is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. So there's, there's some kind of a spirit of truth that Jesus leaves with us, and he is with us, and he is in us. And so I started trying to figure out what is that word spirit, and so I started watching uh, some stuff from The Bible Project. That's a great website, thebibleproject.com, just trying to learn what that, what that word is. What does that word spirit even mean? And here's what I found. It comes from the Greek word pneuma. That word pneuma, it means like breath, wind, presence, energy, it's where we get our word like pneumatic from, air-powered tools. The Hebrew word is even more fun to say. You all have to say it with me, okay? I'm going to give you a little tip. If you don't kind of like clear your throat a little bit, if a little something doesn't come up when you say this word, you're doing it all wrong, okay? Here's the word. It's ruach. That's right. Let's all say it together. Three, two, one. Ruach. I love saying that word. It's just a lot of fun. I'm going to see how many times I can work it into this message. That word ruach, it means the same thing that pneuma does. It means breath. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm doing this deep dive, and I'm trying to research what the Holy Spirit even is, and I'm sitting there, and I'm going, well, thanks, Jesus. This doesn't help me at all. I want a concrete idea. I'm a black and white guy. I want concrete ideas, and now you've given me wind. You've given me breath, presence, energy, I'm sitting here and I'm going, I still have no idea what this is, the breath of God, the wind of God, the, the energy of God. What does that mean? Until I remembered my childhood. I was homeschooled all the way through high school. So that means I was, uh, the heart of it happened right during the 1990s. And let me tell you a little something about being homeschooled in the 1990s. There was a one little thing about being homeschooled in the 1990s that was terribly inconvenient, and that is that no one else was homeschooled in the 1990s. Absolutely zero, I mean, there were a couple, but not very many. You know, nobody had heard of being homeschooled in the 1990s. Nobody understood what was going on, but my mom was kind of a pioneer of this whole thing, and so we were homeschooled in the 1990s. Now, my brothers, I have two younger brothers, we were each three years apart, so, you know, I'm about 11 years old, eight and five, that's the age range that my mom had, and uh, it was kind of interesting because there's a whole bunch of side effects of being homeschooled that you never really thought about, and that is this. Your kids are with you 24-7, so that means if you need to do any shopping, if you need to go get clothes, if you need to go get groceries, whatever... Your kids are going with you. So mom would take us shopping, and we'd be going shopping sometimes, 11 a.m., you know, and there are no other children in the store, and nobody else in the store knows that we're homeschooled, and so mom would get all these weird looks all the time. You know, she'd be looking at us. People would be coming up and asking, are your kids sick today? Because that's the only other option they thought. Like, if we're not in school, then we must be sick. And if they're sick, then why are you dragging them into my store and getting everybody else sick? And mom had to answer questions all the time. You know, no, actually, we're homeschooled. And so then the next question was, well, what is homeschooling? Oh, it's where you teach your children from home. And then there was a whole litany of questions that would come from that back in the 1990s. Like, is that legal? 
Yes, it's legal. Do you have to be teacher certified? No, you don't have to be teacher certified. Mom would have this giant half-hour discussion, and all she wanted to do was get in the store, grab a pair of socks, and leave, you know? So mom was always adamant, you kids have to behave, because that's the last thing she wanted was us drawing more attention to ourselves, or right after she just told everybody we were homeschooled, we're acting like animals and drawing on the walls, just led to not good situations. So anyway, we always had to try to behave super, super well, and we tried, but we failed all the time, and so we're in the store, and I remember one time, we're just bored out of our gourd, and I think we're in like a Kohl's, and mom is trying on clothes, and we can't go in with her, and so we're just all just you know, just trying to survive this 45-minute Kohl's session. And since we're homeschooled, we have little digital Casio watches on, you know? Because that's what all homeschooled kids in the 90s had. So I'm wearing this thing, and I decide, hey, hey, Jeremy, Philip, let's have a breath-holding competition. And so we started holding our breath. We'd all sit in the corner. I'm not lying to you guys. This is absolutely true. We'd be sitting in the corner of the store, and we'd start, you'd hear the little beep, and that was the start of the timer, and we'd hold our breath as long as we possibly could. And whoever held their breath the longest was the winner. And since I have the maturity level of about a fifth or sixth grader, we're actually going to do that today to gr- together as a group to help you get this word image in your mind. So everybody stand up. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have the guys in the back. They're going to put a timer up on this screen here for one minute. And here's what we're going to do. We're all going to hold our breath. I'm going to say three, two, one, go. And when I say that, you're going to hold your breath. And if you hold your breath for the whole minute, awesome, you win the game. If you don't, no shame, no foul, just sit down and we'll see how many people are left standing at the end of one minute. Now, you could do like my brother. He would always act like somebody's strangling him. You know, he's, he's acting like he's about to black out and he's breathing through his nose the whole time. Hey, we're on the honor system here. This is church. If you cheat, God sees it, okay? So, let's go. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Isn't that the longest minute of your life? And then those numbers stall and you're just like, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Holy cow. That's terrible, isn't it? Congratulations to those of you that made it for the full minute or whatever that was. That was a long time. And here's the whole point of this whole thing. You may have walked in here this morning and you may have been like a little anxious. You may have had a lot on your mind. You may have been thinking about a few things stuff that's going on, or maybe you weren't, maybe you're bored to death by this whole, this whole thing I'm doing, and you're thinking about, where do I get lunch? You're thinking about all that sort of stuff, but you do this activity, you hold your breath, you starve your body of air for one minute. By the way, you can sit down, those of you who are still standing up, 
You can hold, you hold your breath for one minute and, and your body's going, air! All other thoughts, all other things you were worried about, everything else that's been going on in your day and in your week get tossed aside for a minute and your body's going, I need air, you idiot. Forget this moron's game. Just sit down and breathe. Why are you doing this to me? And that's exactly the point. Without air, you can do nothing. You know, you can survive without water for a couple of days. You can survive without food for weeks. Air? It's a matter of minutes. I watched a TED Talk where David Blaine talked about his preparation work when he went and set the world record. It was back in the 2010s sometime for holding his breath. And he was on Oprah and did it live on television. He held his breath, get this, for 17 minutes and four seconds. Unbelievable. That record has since been broken, but he has this TED Talk about how he prepared for it. And you should watch it. It's fascinating if you're a geek like me. He did all this training. He would purposely learn how to slow down his heart rate. He trained himself how to slow down his heart rate so he would use less oxygen. He uh, breathed straight O2 to flush all the carbon dioxide out of his system because that's actually why your body is like screaming for air is because it has carbon dioxide buildup that it needs to get rid of. And so he, he learned all of this stuff and put it all into practice to be able to hold his breath for 17 minutes and four seconds. But during those 17 minutes, he could do nothing. He floated in a tank of water and didn't move a muscle. Without air, without breath, you are completely powerless. So when Jesus is referring to the spirit, when he's referring to that spirit of truth, and he's saying that spirit like abides with us and it's in us and all of these other sorts of things, he's saying the very power of God himself, all that strength, all that might, all of that that we ascribe to God, it is here and it is with us and it is in us. It gives a whole lot more weight to verses like John 20, 21 and 22. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is right after he's come back from the grave. This is the first party he's having with his disciples. They're all so excited to see him. They can't believe that he's back after they watched him die and bleed out in front of them. And he's sending them out to start his church. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. It's not a very COVID-friendly verse. Was that too soon? I don't know, it might be. <laughs> but he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. The Bible says that when God brought Jesus back from the dead, it was through his Holy Spirit, through his breath, through his power. It moved back into Jesus' dead body and brought him right out. And then Jesus takes that same breath, that same air, that same wind, and he goes, and gives the Holy Spirit to his disciples. It's just like when you go to a funeral and you see the person laying there in their casket. And I mean, they're physically there, 
but we all know they've left the room. Their pneuma, their ruach, their spirit has left the building. They have no more power. They have no more energy. All of a sudden, as I was receiving that through the deep dive that I did, I kind of started getting a better box for the Holy Spirit. I started having a better image for who he is, what he is. I'd never understood before that when he was saying the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Truth, all these phrases that are in the Bible for God's Holy Spirit, they're talking about the very essence of his power. And it's within me. And it's here with us. All of a sudden, it gives a whole lot more weight to the Holy Spirit than I had ever really considered before. So then that comes to the next question then. And the question is, now that we have God's power, energy, or presence living in us, what does it do? What do I do with this energy from God? What do I do with this presence of God? I want to go back to uh, I want to go back to Romans with this one, and you know Romans Paul does an awesome job, and he's he's talking about a few things. He's talking about a few things, and he's describing kind of how we're made up as human beings through Romans seven, and he's talking about us, and he says there's kind of two parts to being a person. There's your mind, and your mind is the part of your body, the part of your 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 essence that is kind of deciding who you want to be. It's the one that's making decisions about what you're going to do. It's the one that, you know, wakes up and says, I want to have a great day today. Here's all the things that I'd like to get done. Here's who I'd like to be. Here's how I'd like to treat my wife. Here's all this stuff, right? Your mind is the one that says, I want to be, take care of myself. I want to be good looking. I want to be successful. I want to achieve things. I want to be a good husband. I want to be an attentive father. I want to be a great employee, On the other hand, you have your flesh. Notice how I hung on the shh at the end of that word? It's kind of one of those words that just makes you go, blah, you know? (laughs) You have your flesh. And your flesh is over here, and it's the one that says, I know you want to eat right, but you also really, really like Oreos. And in fact, you like them by the entire package. I know you want to be a loving husband, but my gosh, she is a pain in the neck. I know you want to be an attentive father, but are you serious? How many times can you say that this little coloring that they did is awesome? This is ridiculous. I know you want to be a great employee, but you could punch out five minutes early. Here's the problem with this whole mind-flesh thing that's going on. Paul describes it, and he describes these things as being locked in an epic struggle. We have like a boxing match going on between our mind and our flesh, and you all know exactly what I'm talking about because this is the human condition. We all have this war raging inside of ourselves. Over here in the one corner, we have our mind, and here's the problem. Our mind is 128 pounds. It's tiny. It can do nothing. It's weak. It's fragile. And over here we have the flesh, which is a 350-pound animal that's been trained in cage matches. There's absolutely no way for the flesh to, or for the mind to stand up to the flesh and win. 
They're in this struggle. And that's why you can't ever seem to win. That's why you can't ever seem to kick that thing. Nobody ever wakes up and says, you know what, I'd love to be addicted to porn. You know what, I'd love to be an alcoholic. You know what, I'd love to just be angry all the time. I'd love to have bitterness just set in in my heart and ruin all my relationships. You know what, I would just absolutely love to be an arrogant snob that nobody can stand. But we all do it. We all have one of those things that we cannot get ahead of. One or two or five or ten Everybody's got a bunch of stuff. Why? It's because our mind cannot keep up with the flesh, and the flesh wins every single time. Which is why Paul says in Romans 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Paul is identifying that struggle right there. And then he follows it really quickly with one of the most incredible passages of Scripture, in my opinion, ever. It's Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. You telling me there's hope? You're telling me I can get out of this? And Paul's saying, yeah, it's possible. How? For the law of the Spirit the breath, the pneuma, the ruach of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What incredible news that is. Jesus sends that Holy Spirit, that holy breath, the very power of God moves into the boxing ring with the mind and the flesh and all of a sudden there's a third player And what your mind cannot do, the Spirit of God can. Your mind cannot win against the flesh, but the flesh doesn't stand a chance against the guy that brought Jesus back from the dead. The Holy Spirit moves in and says, you are free from who you used to be. You used to be defined by porn. You used to be defined by addiction. You used to be defined by anger. You used to be defined by arrogance. You used to be defined by sin. You used to be defined by your flesh. Your flesh was who you were, and it is no longer because the very spirit of life, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit has moved into your life, and that is what the power of the Holy Spirit does. Paul just keeps like, just ramming that point home over and over and over again. Check out later in Romans 8, he says this, however, you are not in the flesh. Isn't that great news? You are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, Yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. He's saying God makes our soul, our spirit, our breath, our ruach alive. You know, this body is dying. This body right here, it's going to expire sometime. But my soul is alive because of what Christ has done. And he's saying the Holy Spirit's work isn't finished yet. Yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Get this, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Our bodies will be made new also, guys. 
That's why we believe in a resurrection someday. Talk about power of the Spirit. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh. I love this. We didn't just trade in the flesh for a new slave master. We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Guys, the main work of the Spirit, this is my next point, the main work of this power of the Spirit is to rescue us from our flesh. The Holy Spirit moves in, conquers the flesh, conquers sin. We are now free. He starts rejuvenating our soul. Someday he's gonna rejuvenate our body. We're gonna come back again. And that's the main work of the power of the Spirit of God. One of those tests that Paul just described in that passage, how you can know that you have the Spirit of God alive in you, are you systematically stomping out sin? Are you wiping it from your life? Is it, is, are, you, are you living with more fruit of the Spirit this year than you were last year? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you have more of that in your life this year than you did last year? If so, that's a work of the Spirit. Praise God. He is alive in you. He's doing his work in you. Do you not have more of the Spirit? Are you stuck? Do you have sin that just you cannot get ahead of it? Man, Paul talks about that too. He says we come to God as his son, as his daughter, and we say, Abba, Father, Daddy, help me. I'm weak. I'm pathetic. My mind is trapped. My flesh is winning. I am broken. I am stuck. I have nothing. I can offer nothing. I have tried everything. Nothing works. God, you are my only hope. You are the only one that can set me free. Help me, God. Jesus promises that's a, uh, that's a prayer he'll hear. That's a prayer he'll hear. Last little sidebar to this message. What do we do with tongues? What do we do with miracles? What do we do with visions, dreams? I mean, I, I kind of hung that little... <laughs> I hung that little tantalizing thing out in front of you. What am I, and, I, and I'm going to hold true. I'm going to address that here. I'll be honest, I've never spoken out loud in a tongue where someone can hear me. and I've never, I've never laid hands on a sick person in a hospital and watched them spring out of the bed. I've never had a vision. But I know the Spirit of God is alive and active in me. Why? Because I see Romans 8 showing up in my life. So what do we do with visions? What do we do with dreams? What do we do with tongues? What do we do with all that stuff? And that's a long topic. We could speak for hours and hours about that. People have written books and books and books about that stuff. And go read it. It's awesome stuff. But I want to share with you one story 
there was a man who was paralyzed and they were coming, trying to bring him to Jesus. And Jesus was teaching and the crowd was so thick and nobody would move so they could not get this paralyzed man to Jesus to, for him to be healed. And so his friends, these are my kind of people. They're like solutions-oriented people. They figured out a way. So he's standing there teaching. All of a sudden, they start busting through the roof over Jesus' head. And they lower this guy down in front of Jesus. Imagine that. I'm teaching you right now. I'm preaching a sermon right now. Imagine somebody just starts tearing apart the roof. It's crazy stuff that's happening. So they tear apart the roof. They drop this guy down in there. He's laying there in front of Jesus. And Jesus, you know, this is the moment. The whole story has been building up to this climax. And here's what Jesus says. At the climax of the story, he looks at the guy and he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. In my head, I just hear brakes screeching, hard stop. Who wrote this script? Are you kidding me? Like if I'm in the audience of watching Jesus, I want to raise my hand and I want to be like, excuse me, excuse me. What about his legs? Like, yeah, sin is cool. I'm glad that's gone. But wh what about his legs, God? <laughs> Jesus, what? And Jesus knows this is going on. And so Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, okay, what's more difficult for me to say? Is it more difficult for me to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it more difficult for me to say get up and walk? And the, the answer is obvious. Jesus has a lot more at stake if he says get up and walk. Because if the guy doesn't get up and walk, Jesus is proven to be a fraud. And he has absolutely no authority to say anything about sin. And Jesus looks at him and he says, my son, get up and walk. He gets up and he walks. See, here's something that Jesus knows that we forget so easily. I said earlier, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Imagine you're paralyzed. Imagine you are that man. But you have the fruit of the Spirit. You have so much love that people are flocking to you because they know you love them. You have so much joy that there's a smile. You just radiate joy, peace. You are calm even though you're paralyzed. Even though your body is broken, you have so much peace in your soul that you know you're going to be okay. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus knew that when his sin was forgiven, when his flesh was killed, when, when the flesh was dead and the Spirit of God moved in and started producing his fruit, legs, being able to walk is no longer the main issue. Jesus gave his best gift first. And the only reason he gave his second gift was to prove to everyone else that he was able to give the first gift. He was able to give the gift of his spirit. He was able to give the gift of forgiveness, the death of the flesh. Do visions happen? Do tongues happen? Do dreams happen? Do healings happen? Do miracles happen? Yeah, guys, they do. There's just way too many scriptures about it. I've talked with way too many people who I sincerely respect and trust to tell me 100% truth where they've experienced things that they cannot explain any other way than by the Holy Spirit doing his incredible power. But I'll tell you this much. The Holy Spirit never does those things just to achieve his own glory, just to show off, just to be a cool magic trick. He does those things to point back to this work, the key work, the main work, which is happening right here in my heart right now. It's happening in your heart right now.
When you think about the power of God, think about the very breath that breathed life back into Jesus' dead body. And it's in you, breathing life into who you are at your very core right now. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for your spirit. Thank you for such an incredible gift. Thank you for the power that has set me free from my sin and from my addiction and from my brokenness. Lord, I want to join with everyone here in this room who has experienced that power, who has experienced that life, who has experienced that freedom from the flesh. And I want to say thank you. And I want to say praise God, praise Jesus, praise the Holy Spirit for your incredible work, for the mystery that is the Holy Spirit. Thank you for making us new. Thank you for making us whole. Thank you for breathing life back into us. God, I want to join also with everyone who is here who feels stuck. They hear about the power of the Spirit and they're thinking, I'm not putting sin to death. I don't have more of the fruit of the Spirit. I don't have more love. I don't have more joy. I don't have more peace than I did last year. Lord, we come before you right now and we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father, forgive us. Heal our brokenness. We want you to heal us by the power of your spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, and make us new. Thank you, Jesus, amen.